please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We have finally come to the last two of eight signs, if you remember, that Jesus is giving in a response to his disciples when they asked, what would be an indication of them? What would be a sign to them that history is wrapping up that the end of the age has come and that Jesus would make himself powerfully known on the earth. There were eight signs that Jesus said would, would accompany the end. and We are now at the last two. Uh, the seventh I had originally labeled the darkening of the sky. Uh, I changed it this week to the disruption of the cosmos. Because what will happen, the phenomena that will happen will uh, transcend. It will go beyond uh, that which is just happening in our atmosphere. So verses 24 and 25, we will see the disruption of the cosmos. And then finally, the last sign will be the Lord himself, uh, as we will see the descent of the Son of Man in verses 26 and 27. Let's read what Mark has for us today. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Let's look at the seventh sign, the one that immediately proceeds and perhaps even coincides uh, with the coming of the Lord himself. That is the disruption of the cosmos in verse 24 and 25. Jesus says, but in those days. But is a a contrastive. It's telling us, it's a hint in the narrative that there's a shift, there's a change. And he has just talked about uh, the days in which uh, there will be great deception and many wars and earthquakes and famines and Christian persecution from all peoples. And then there will be uh, Christian persecution that will be added with the rising of Antichrist and the uh, anti-Semitic uh, genocide that he will bring upon Israel and, the, and even the rise of false Christs and false prophets with signs and wonders which are designed to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. That is where they were. But now there, there is a dramatic shift, something that has never happened on any scale before in this magnitude, the sun, Jesus says, after that tribulation, after those days, he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. I can remember uh, back around 2007, 2008, uh, when I was living in California, there were some, there were some pretty bad uh, fires. And uh, kind of like what we saw in Exodus this morning, there was so much air pollution in the atmosphere that even in midday, it seemed, uh, it seemed like it was late, late afternoon. And then uh, just a couple years ago, do you remember the Napa fires? The fire was so vast, so engulfing that at midday, when the sun should have been the champion of the sky, it looked like a looked like uh, someone had put cheap uh, third-rate quality batteries in the sun because there was absolutely no light. They had uh, uh, the city um, services had to uh, turn on the street lamps in midday. It looked like it was midnight when it was midday. And there are some that will say, there are some that, that do say that this is what Jesus means here with these words. And it's surmisable. It's possible that uh, the great earthquakes, which we've already looked at, they're going to cause great fissures, 
which will uh, in turn vent unprecedented volumes of ash and soot into the air. And it's going to be that widespread, widespread uh, air pollution that's going to make the sun and moon appear to have lost their light. But I don't think it's that. I think God is simply going to turn the sun off like a light switch. Luke, in his parallel, adds, uh, chapter 21, verses 25 to 26, he says this, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice that Jesus says the signs lie in the sun and the moon and the stars, not in the air, not in our atmosphere. And even if that were the case, nothing happening in the atmosphere, nothing blocking out the, the light from the sun and from the moon would explain why the stars are falling to earth like overripe figs. I think it'll be very clear that supernatural things are happening, things of which have never happened like that before. We saw darkness on Egypt for three days. They will see darkness on the entire earth for who knows how long. There will be no natural explanation for the sun appearing perfectly fine. It will be another day, just like it was before that, and then one second later, pitch black darkness. And you won't see the sky anymore. Luke said it would be like a scroll that is rolled up and put away because it's no longer needed. You won't find the sky. And the only stars that will be seen are the ones that are descending. Jesus says the stars will be falling from heaven. And the idea is, is many stars falling one after the other, thudding into the earth, thudding into the earth, thudding into the earth, star after star crashing into the crust. Those ones, as they are ignited from the rapid descent, you'll see those. Be like little flashlights of death being hurled at you. Zechariah 14.6 says, In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It's a really interesting word. It's the word to uh, congeal, to coagulate, to curdle, or to become rigid. And the idea is is the the luminaries, the sun and the moon, they will not just be turned down. They will shrivel up and die. And they they, they, they will be more than just dormant. They will die. There will be no energy left in them. I just quoted Zechariah 14. The Old Testament is a good place to go to find out more about this because if you have a NASB, you should notice that the letters are in full capital. Full capital. That is the the translator's way in the NASB to to let you know that it is either a quotation or an allusion to, uh, to something in the Old Testament text. And when you go to the Old Testament text, you'll find uh, pri- primarily in the prophets, both major and minor, that there is, that there is a day, there, there, there is a uh, c- common theme in all of them. They are all looking forward to a particular day that was coming. And they call it the day of the Lord. And they tell us that this will be a day where God will show the world that he is the one, despite Whatever the world says, despite what man says, despite how man feels about it, God will remind the world by showing them firsthand, just as he did with Egypt, he will show the entire world that he's in control. And in that day, sin will no longer be advocated by the government. Sin will no longer be celebrated by the media. Because sin will be judged. Isaiah 13 9 to 10 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations 
will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. And 34, he continues, chapter 34, For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood and all the host of heaven, all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. It'll be done with. It'll, it won't be needed anymore. It'll be put away like you ask your children to put their toys away or, or your husbands. It, the sky will be put away. All their hosts, says Isaiah, all their host will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or from the fig tree. Not just dormant, not just in sleep mode, dead. Joel 2, 10 and 11 says this, Before them, before the nations, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Rhetorical question, implied answer, nobody. Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Do one more. Zechariah 1, 14 and following. A day of great wrath is that day. A day of, and he uses two words that could be translated tribulation. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Remember that, clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Didn't we see that this morning? Because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 13. Jesus concludes with this summary statement. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Now that's a little vague. Potentially, some think that the powers in the heavens that are going to be shaken refer to the forces of evil and Satan and his cohorts who are going to be not a little disturbed and worried at what is going on in those days. Ephesians 2.2 says that we used to follow the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Ephesians 2 calls Satan the ruler of the air. And 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces or principalities of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the same word that Jesus uses in Mark Mark 13.25. And so... According to that interpretation, Satan and his demons, they will be shaken with great fear. They will be exactly like Legion was. Remember back to Mark chapter 5. They will be exactly like Legion when he fell before Jesus. Trembling, pleading, sniveling like a pathetic being. acting in a way that he wouldn't act when he was in the presence of normal men, but when, he, when he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus, he knows his place. Revelation 19.20 says that the, the first thing that Jesus will do upon returning before slaying the armies of the beast, he's going to seize the beast, and he's going to throw him into the lake of fire, and then he's going to deal with 
his armies. And then in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, he is going to take the dragon, which earlier John identified as Satan. He will take him, seize him, and bind him in the abyss for a thousand years. And that is when you will read in chapter 20 when the millennial reign will occur. In that day, Satan will know, all the demons will know that their time is up. Remember, remember uh, uh, a demon came up to Jesus one time and said, have you come to torment me before the time? They know that their time is coming. They know that that day is coming. And when these phenomena in the sky and on the earth happens, they will know that there are a few precious sands left in the hourglass, and so they will be shaken. No matter how high he ascended in those seven years, in those final three and a half years, no matter how triumphant his victories felt, he will be dethroned in an instant. Jesus will not debate him. Jesus will not dialogue with him. He will cast him into hell. And so, yes, he and his demons, the power of the, the powers of the air, as Ephesians 2 says, the principalities or powers of the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 says, the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the ruler or prince of this world, as John twelve thirty one calls him. Yeah, he and his cronies are going to be quite shaken in that day. That is true. And that's one way you could read it. Uh, I think just uh, uh, another way you could read it is just... Uh, seeing what Jesus says in verse 25 as commentary and what he has already said will happen in the heavens or in the cosmos. And that's how I understand it. The powers in the heavens are the sun and the moon and the stars. And up until this point, in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus hasn't talked about demons. He hasn't talked about Satan. And so referring to them as powers in the heavenlies, while it is possible, it is plausible, I think it is vague. And so I see the powers in the heavens as the sun, moon, and stars. I lied earlier. There's one more. Isaiah 13, 13. God says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place. It's almost as if an astronomical view uh, is in mind. The earth will be shaken from its place, from its setting, at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And so the atmosphere and the dwelling place of the sun and the moon and the stars, they are going to be torn. They are going to be ripped and smashed and they are going to be shaken about with the effect that Carl Sagan's precious cosmos will quite literally begin to die and fall apart. What Jesus is saying here is quite literally the cosmos will go and take into a cosmic convulsion. No wonder Jesus had just said earlier that unless the Lord had shortened those days, unless the Lord had intervened and put a stop to those days, there would be no life saved or preserved no wonder everything is literally falling apart at the seams and one might ask how long is it going to be like that how long will the sky be dark how long will the sun and the moon not give their light how long will the stars be falling from heaven we aren't told specifically how long will it be an hour will it be a day a week a month we don't know But I can guarantee you this, however long it is, this phenomena, these wonders, these signs are going to have their intended effect. The people are going to be not a little unsettled. They are going to be shaken. They are going to be apprehensive and daunted and panic-stricken that the world underneath their feet, as they are watching, if they have flashlights, otherwise they'll feel it, that the world is literally falling apart under their feet. The world is dying. It will be a day of undeniable cataclysmic despair. And it is with that as the backdrop, like a, like a, a sheet of black velvet, that darkness, that despair, that chaos, that death, 
will be the backdrop, will be the black velvet for the shining jewel that is the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. And as 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The devastation, the disruption of the cosmos, in light of everything else that has happened, will only heighten and magnify the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as he descends. So let's look at verse 26 and 27, the descent of the Son of Man. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So when these final and great undeniable signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars take place, it's going to be then, and it's only going to be then that the grand climax of history is going to take place. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the immortal, the sovereign ruler of the cosmos, will appear in sovereign, blazing glory. Now, let me ask you, what does Jesus call himself when he's describing and when he's foretelling this absolutely spectacular scene? If there's any scene in the Bible that you would wish that you could witness, it would be this one. I guarantee you it will dwarf anything else, any other wondrous thing, any other amazing thing or miracle that you could see in, in, the, in the pages of Scripture, this one tops them all by a landslide. What does he call himself in this scenario? Does he call himself the Lord of glory? Because he is. Does he call himself the Almighty? Because he is. Does he call himself the eternal Son of a living God? Because he is. What about the King of kings? And the Lord of Lords, because He is. What does He call Himself? Those are all true things. Those are all befitting titles and names for Jesus. What does He call Himself? Son of Man. That is a remarkable title. It is remarkable. It is a remarkable title because of what it insinuates when you, in, in light of the fact of who Jesus is. It's an amazing thing that the eternal Son of God, who shared infinite glory, infinite beauty, infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, infinite power and strength. And joy and love within the Godhead for all the eternity past. And he will share all those things with, within the Godhead for all eternity future. How amazing it is that that one, the one who spoke and things that were not came into being. Things that were not became things that were. That that divine person who created the firefly and the supernova and everything in between identifies himself by the quality of his creation. That's, that's amazing. The infinite God identifies himself by the quality of his created being. The son of man. It's the title Jesus used for himself more than anything else. This title reminds us of what Paul says in Philippians 2, that though Christ existed in the form of God, that word is morphe, it's, it's being, uh, uh, his frame, his, his, his nature of God, he, because he is God. He didn't consider his equality with God something that he had to latch on to. Have you ever, you ever had a small child? Uh, uh, and they had something that they're not supposed to have, and you try to take it from them, and they, they, they latch onto it. They grasp it. They will consider it robbery if you take it from them. That's the word Paul uses here. He doesn't consider his equality with God something that he had to hold on to for fear of losing. 
He didn't have to contend for it. He didn't have to fight for it or defend it. He rather emptied himself. Well, Aaron, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, good thing you ask because Paul tells us. He defines his, him emptying himself when he says taking on the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself by adding human nature to himself. He took the form of a bondservant and he was made in the likeness of men and found in the appearance as a man. And you might ask appropriately, why? Why would he do that? The answer is so that God, as a man, might die. A truth he has attested to quite numerously in the gospel, many, in t- many times in conjunction with this beloved title for himself, the Son of Man. Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Mark 9.12, it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Mark 10:33 The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will contemn him to death. And then the capstone verse in the gospel of Mark, Mark 10:45 For the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom could be a substitute, a substitutionary payment a substitutionary atonement. This title, Son of Man, it asserts his humanity, but it also asserts that he is Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is God's appointed ruler for the earth. Where would I get that? Thanks for asking. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And you should notice Uh, uh, in light of what we observed in verses 24 and 25 about uh, all bold words, if you have the NASB, what do you see about the Son of Man coming in clouds? It's in bold, which means that's a a reference to an Old Testament passage. Ergo, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, which goes on to say is everlasting and will not pass away and will not be destroyed. Did you know that that was the desire? That was the goal. That was the prize for which every king of the old world sought for himself. Every would-be emperor of the old world, Pharaoh, and Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, and so many others, they have all had their, their hour of fame. They've had their 15 minutes in the spotlight trying to seize this for themselves, to be worshipped, to be admired, to be respected, to be feared to be deified, if possible, by all the nations. They've all tried to do it. They all had their 15 minutes, and then they lost it. Jesus will actually get it because God is giving it to him. Daniel said that he is one like the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. It is with these clouds, these heavenly clouds that the Son of Man will return. These are not normal clouds of moisture and air. These are not your cumulus or your little nimbus clouds. These are great, heavenly, wondrous clouds. These are clouds of divine splendor, which God has employed before to both conceal and reveal his immortal, infinite glory. Did you know that the scripture portrays God as so infinitely holy that even Even the holiest of men, even the prophets of old, when they saw his 
presence, when they saw his visage, do you know what the, what, what the um, usual response was? Do you know what the usual response is when a man of God even saw an angel of God? Oh, hey, angel, how you doing? Coffee at my place? No. Fall down in fear. Fall down in trembling. Fall down thinking you are about to die because a being much greater than you is now in your presence. It is only intensified. It is magnified a hundredfold, a thousandfold when a mere mortal is in the presence of the immortal, infinite God. Isaiah said this in six, Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me. That is, a, that is a word of condemnation. That is a word of lament. It is a cry of despair. Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the, the King, the Lord of hosts. Daniel says that when, when he saw God, it's actually Christ. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. He says in Daniel 10, 8, no strength was left in me. My, my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. My wife went to Home Depot the other day to look at some paints. I don't know if, she, if Jen, did you find deathly pallor in the paint palette? I'm just curious what that looks like. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to turn a deathly power, pallor. That's what Daniel says happened to him because he saw God. No strength remained in me. Sinful people can't stand in the uncovered, undiluted, unrestrained presence of holy God. Remember, remember the, the, the disciples... These men who had walked with Jesus for almost three years and they, he just pulls back the veil for a minute on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're, they lose their minds. They fall down. They're bewildered. They're scared. They're trembling. And Jesus has to sovereignly come up and touch their shoulders and say, do not fear. God, had to, God in, the, in the Son had to use His sovereign power to comfort them. That's how terrified they were in His undiluted holiness. And so that's why God veiled His presence throughout the Old Testament through what, what theologians... Uh, this, is, this is really deep technical language. A glory cloud. That's not technical at all. That God veiled his presence in the glory cloud. I said it concealed, but it also revealed. It, it withheld the full magnitude of his glory, but it still radiated his glory so that men could see it and not be slain on the spot. God in Exodus 19.9, this is just mere hours or maybe a day before the, the Ten Commandments are given. God is speaking to Moses and he says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. The Psalm 97, 2 says, clouds and thick darkness surround him because he is inapproachable. One does not just casually stroll up to the Almighty and give him a high five. God is too holy for that. And it is this brilliant, brilliantly luminescent abundantly thick and deep cloud of glory that will escort. It will be his chariot as he descends. And you have to remember, what is going to be the current state of affairs? The entire galaxy, the entire cosmos will be a great velvety darkness and then boom! Light will shine forth. A light will shine forth and that light will be Jesus in his undiluted, unrestrained, undiminished, unfathomable, infinite glory. Beloved, I hope, I hope you would long to see that. Thomas Kincaid couldn't even hope to get a millionth of a percentage of that glory in his best painting if he had a lifetime to work on it. The same one who ministered humbly on earth, the same one who suffered and died... That same one will return with great power and glory and authority and majesty and even the most vilest of men will have no recourse but to stare in abject, utter, complete 
unsettling horror as the bright morning star of the Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven to earth. And you might ask, what does he do with that great glory and great power and great authority? Revelation 19 tells us he slays the beast and then his armies and then throws Satan into the abyss. And that is his judgment. And that's what he will do. Uh, I'm sure you got from, from just a sampling of those Old Testament passages that the day of the Lord is greatly concerned with judgment, right? You got that? I'm not, I'm not surprising or shocking any, anybody by saying that. It is, a, it is a day concerned with great and abundant judgment, but in Mark, Jesus is speaking to his own. And so Mark includes his salvific work. The day of the Lord will, will encompass a work of judgment, but it will also encompass a work of salvation. Look at verse 27. He dispatches his angels. And they go forth. And they will gather together who? Who? His elect, his people, those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, 3. Those whom he has given to the Son, according to John six thirty seven. And not a single one who was alive at the time that this tribu- tribulation began and went into hiding, which would be an act of obedience because of the Lord's warning. And every single one who didn't believe the false report that the Messiah is here. No, no, no. The Messiah is over here. Because that would be an act of obedience to the Lord warning. Every single one hiding in caves, hiding in clefts, hiding in the very far reaches of the very extent of the ends of the earth. Not a single one, no matter where they are, no matter how good they are at playing hide-and-seek, not a single one will be lost. Not a single one will be lost. The angels will go to the full extent of the earth. Look at how emphatic this is. They will gather together his elect from the four winds. Winds blow east, north, east, and wait. East, west, north, and south. That pretty much covers the, the directional field. From the farthest ends of the earth to even the farthest ends of heaven. What, what does that mean? They will be found by a heavenly GPS who has never once lost their location and knows precisely where they are. Every single one of his own will be found, collected, retrieved, and saved. Well, what about... What about those who didn't obey and didn't run? Or, or what about, you know, Jesus talked about those who were pregnant and those who were nursing babies in these days when one would need to be uh, quick and speedy and stealthy. What about those who had the uh, an unfortunate fate of being caught and executed during the tyranny of the beast? What about those? Well, I'll turn to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. Look at the second line of verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had, who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they stayed in the grave because after that, that, that that's the end, right? Oh, Really? Oh, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. What's the second death? That's the death you die after you come back from being dead the first time. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Not a single one, whether those who hid or were those who were unfortunate enough to be caught, none who belong to the Lord will be lost. Everyone will be saved if they're his. 
So what, what should we walk away with this? I want you to see that the second coming of the Lord, unlike his first coming, will be grand. And it will be greatly and highly visible. Jesus, which all the Gospels tell us, Jesus was born in weakness. But that's not how he will come. He will come in immeasurable strength and power. He was born in poverty. He will come as the king of the earth and the cosmos. He was born in obscurity. When he comes again, he will be seen by all. And he will be the only visible object in the sky. When he came the first time, there was no room for him at the end. This time, he's going to make room. And he's going to bring his kingdom with him and establish it in Jerusalem on the earth. First time, he was unreceived. He was unknown. He was dishonored and even disbelieved by his own people. Second time, he's coming with royal dignity and with heavenly armies behind him. And he will be known and he will be recognized and he will be respected and revered by all people. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. Whether they want to do it or not, nevertheless, they will. First time, he was rejected and suffered many things. He was slandered. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was beat. He was scourged. And he was crucified like a criminal. Second time, he will come and he will personally slay his enemies. The first time he was condemned. The second time he won't be the victim. He will be judge, jury, and executioner. Righteously, by the way. He came the first time to suffer. He came the first time to bear our sins and to be made a curse for sinners, to be despised, to be rejected, to be unjustly condemned and slain. The second time he comes to reign. He comes to put down every enemy beneath his feet and to take unto himself the kingdoms of the world as his rightful inheritance. And to rule them with righteousness. You look look around at the cacophony that's in the news and just the the political and the social and the civil unrest. The world is crying out for for someone to rule it in righteousness. Right? I mean, can't isn't it just completely logical to look out and see that something ain't right with the world? He will be that solution. He will be the one to rule it in righteousness. And he will judge all men and he will live forevermore. How greatly different from his first coming will his second coming be. And as his friends, as his followers, as his disciples, how comforting that should be to you and to me when our when our lives feel like they're falling apart, when our society seems like it's falling apart and spiraling out of control, we, beloved, we know how it ends. And God has never once been dislodged from his throne. I hope you see that this is a, a king who is worthy of your trust and worthy of your obedience and worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be followed. If you're not, why not? Because just as this day is, is comforting to those who are his, this will be a day who is great, that will be greatly confounding to his enemies. This will be a day that will be greatly confounding to those who, who, who resist him, who resist his rule, and who resist his, his right to reign. This same Jesus of Nazareth whom the world and, and, and even us for a, for a t- time have 
resisted and despised and rejected and rebelled against, don't you see he will have the final word. He will have the final preeminence. He will have the final say. Do you see that? I would implore you, if you haven't yet, if you haven't yet abided by his terms of discipleship, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him, do so. Don't don't play church. Don't play Christian. Beloved, we have already seen so in the last couple weeks. There is a time of apostasy coming. How many major name Christians have you seen on your social media and in your Facebook? How many names of Christian writers and Christian pastors whom you used to listen to and who you you used to be edified and perhaps even you were saved under, how many of them are you seeing fall by the wayside and fall away from the faith? Beloved, you need to know Christ and you need to know that you belong to Christ. And if you're not right now, now is a perfect time to start. Follow him as his disciple to commit yourself to his word, to entrust your life to his care, to to fellowship with his people, and to long for his return. The Bible says that his return is, is our precious hope. Now I have a second one for you. This this one's bonus. It's not on the outline. I want you, I I just want to say a quick word concerning the doctrine of election. Did you notice uh, in the last, in the last verse or two of last week's, let's see, verse 20, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Verse 22, uh, the false Christs and prophets will show signs and wonders to lead, if possible, the elect. And then, In verse 27, the angels whom he sends will gather together his elect. Three times in a few number of verses, we see see this, this reference to election. And this is a good opportunity to talk about this because I think many people don't know what to do with the doctrine of election. We have, for a while, had a relative time of peace in the church. And I think... The doctrine of election confuses us because we can sit down uh, relatively without persecution. I mean, the, really, the, per, the, the greatest persecution we have, we've had up until now is just having our feelings hurt because we're, uh, we're, we're rejected. But we can sit down and we can dialogue with people and we've, we've been able to do this and we can give them ap- ample evidence for the truthfulness and the reliability of the Bible and the resurrection of Jesus and we can answer all their questions, we can answer all their objections and people will still walk away in unbelief. And we can live our whole lives as a testimony to our unsaved friends and family and still they won't believe. And so the conclusion, many, or the, the, the resulting question that many people ask is why? And so, some preachers are so quick to, to touch upon election, well, it's because they aren't elect. You don't know that. He doesn't know that. And I firmly believe the doctrine of election isn't the answer to why they won't believe. Why do I say that? Because there's another doctrine that is a much better explanation for why people won't believe. And that's the doctrine of total depravity. Last time I checked, Romans 3 doesn't... Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 8 doesn't point man and his free will in a very good spot, does it? Last time I checked, Romans 3 said there's no one who does good, there's none who does righteous, there's none who seeks after God, no, not one. That seems to cover the playing field, doesn't it? Romans chapter 5. In Adam, uh, uh, through Adam, death spread to all men. Thus sin spread to all men. That seems to cover the playing field. Romans chapter 8. The, the natural mind cannot please God because it is hostile towards God. It is at enmity with God. The, the natural man left to himself does not seek God. No wonder they don't believe the gospel, repent and believe. I believe the purpose 
and the design of the doctrine of election is not to be used in evangelism. I believe it is to edify and to encourage and to bolster the saint, the one who already has responded to the gospel. The doctrine of election is an affirmation of God's grace that it is, it is explaining what happened when you believed the gospel. It's like buying a car and bringing it home, and after you already have it, you appropriate it, you possess it, it's yours, and then you can lift up the hood and you can find out how it works. That's how the doctrine of election is. It's explaining what God did for you in the past. And it should be a comfort to you. It's an affirmation of His grace to you when you were yet His enemy. It's an affirmation of that God's grace, no matter what you do, will not run out. What did Paul say in Philippians 1? What he who began a good work will complete it. He will be faithful to perfect it. What God started, he will finish. You you look at how Jesus refers to election three times. He is bringing it up to comfort his disciples. What God started in them, the devil won't be able to undo it. The world won't be able to undo it. They won't sabotage it. They won't derail it. What God started, he will finish. So, beloved, if you you belong to him, if you have responded to the gospel, if you long for the Lord and you love him, take comfort in this blessed, blessed doctrine that God will be faithful to you because that's his character. Amen? Lord, we thank you for we thank you for this text, which you have provided for your church to comfort them uh, in light of hard times that are coming. Help us to be men and women who are committed to you and to your word. Help us to be discerning, and as we will touch upon next week, help us to be waiting and watching. Help us to be faithful. Help us to not be anxious but to rest in security and and to dwell in your steadfastness. Amen.